Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD research student at the University of Kent, and this is the latest in our special series of sex, sex work and sexualities. And with me today, I've got Barb Brent, Tila Sanders and Chris Wakefield, who are going to talk about their new book, Paying, Paying for Sex in the Digital Age. Can you introduce yourselves and tell us about your areas of expertise, please? Okay, thank you, Rachel. My name is Tila Sanders. I'm Professor of Criminology at the University of Leicester. Bob? I'm Barb Brent, a Professor in Sociology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I'm Chris Wakefield, and I am a PhD candidate uh, in Sociology at the University of Las Vegas, Nevada as well. And you're all very, very welcome. So, uh, so let's get into the book because it's an awesome book and I sort of read it yesterday. Can you tell us what the aim of the book is, please? Yeah. I mean, if we start with Teela and go around, maybe. Okay, so it's a big piece of work, but I think the overall aims are about having, we've got some fantastic survey evidence that we'll talk to you about in, a little bit more, but it's, it's, it's showcasing some um, empirical data there is not much in this area. So it's really about looking at the customer element, um, the consumption side of sexual services. And it does a whole range of things in relation to trying to find trends and patterns across the UK and the US, looking at situational as well as individual factors. And within that, there's broader aims to debunk myths, stereotypes, think about what the broader sex industry is um, often the the provider is talked about a lot, but not um, the, the the consumption end. Um, and it is really is trying to um, expand our knowledge of that element of the sex industry. Okay, and it's it's an element that's just totally totally ignored. It and when it is mentioned, it's just totally demonised. Uh, Barb and Chris, have you got anything else that you'd like to sort of like add to the what the aim of this book is? Um, no, but I, I mean, of, of course, I will say something anyway, uh, <laughs> because I think what's so important about this book is the fact that it's filling a, a gap in the knowledge that we uh, don't have about clients, in spite of the fact that there are increasingly attempts to try to regulate or eliminate the industry by criminalizing clients. So there's a lot of assumptions about what clients are and how they act and what they do. And our goal was to, to, to give some evidence-based research into the policy arena. Excellent. And Chris? Yeah, um, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll point very much to what Barb and Tila said, but I'll also add um, there's some lovely extras that come along with this book besides just looking at the data. Um, and uh, so for me, uh, despite being the person uh, brought on primarily to work on the data, I'm a bit of a theory head uh, and uh, a lot of work on uh, clients of sex workers doesn't involve a lot of rich development of theory. And so we attempted to correct some of that as well. Uh, we have lots of, um, we have lots of ideas and propositions that we hope will be influencing uh, sex work client research uh, for the next decade or two, things that you don't often see stuff like uh, discussing life course perspectives uh, for clients examining um, temporal aspects of, of client 
uh, interactions, and also consumption and market patterns. It's it's stuff that you do not often see in this in this area. Uh, we hope it's sorely needed. We hope that uh, we hope that it's going to make um, it's going to change the way we talk about these subjects uh, in academia. Yeah, and I I think it's really important because. If the if the narrative of the sex worker is being hijacked by by sort of like sort of feminist discourses, well then the narrative of the the actual customer has been totally silenced and demonised. And I think I think this is way overdue. And, and this was why I was so enthusiastic to to actually re, you know read the book because you know they're voiceless, aren't they? We just don't you know they're just cast as these kind of you know abusers or like you know manipulatives. And we don't really get to hear anyone's experience. So, yeah, I'm really excited. So you describe uh, in the book, you describe at length using the comparative studies of sex work consumers. Uh, you, sorry, let me start again. You describe using the comparative studies of sex worker consumers in the two different countries, America and the UK. Can you tell us about the surveys, please? Yeah, I'll start off with the one, the UK one. So this was part of a broader project called Beyond the Gaze, which is looking at online working practices, safety and regulation funded by the um, Economic and Research um, Council. Uh, we did client survey slightly as an adjunct because our focus is very much on sex workers. But we realised to understand the Internet uh, and online activities, we really needed to have some knowledge about the customers as well. So in 2016, we had a survey out there for three months. And surprisingly, we got 1,323 responses, which we were um, really, really happy about. It certainly is in Europe, the largest survey database on clients um, at the moment. Um, it is very much a white survey sample. Um, we just left it there. We didn't particularly do any hard recruiting. Um, it does uh, affect, I think, a broader issue of the book in relation to who we're talking about, what the data is. You know, they're very much white respondents and we have to reflect here. These are people who completed online questionnaires mainly. I think that was the case entirely for, for the US as well. So it does reflect here's the digital divide and we have to think about broader social and economic inequalities in relation to access to digital and confidence with that digital and belief that that digital anything survey related is confidential and anonymous as, as we would, would put it out. It's important to note with this comparative element is that in the UK, sex work um, broadly is legal, despite it being criminalised in the context. But in the States, obviously, it's a highly illegal context. But we've got two surveys that were different and they didn't ask entirely the same questions. But we've managed to bring them together and, and use um, Chris's expert skills to do statistical analysis on two quite different databases. Um, the Bob and Chris can talk to the, to the U.S. Um, yeah, in the U.S., we started off. Uh, your your listeners may or may not know that uh, in the U.S., Nevada has uh, several counties, which are the only places in the U.S. where sex work is legal in uh, in legal brothels. Uh, it's kind of a small industry, but we started out actually wanting to understand clients of legal brothels, um, and so we. We started an indoor, uh, an online survey to, to try to get at that. Um, and we quickly realized that many of the clients of the legal brothels also uh, paid for sexual services in other markets. So we uh, expanded it to, uh, to the whole 
array, uh, and we um, uh, we managed to get just under a thousand usable responses to our survey. Um, uh, so in combination, this is a pretty huge deal. But like Tila said, uh, our respondents as well were about 87% uh, white. Um, we we uh, oversampled the brothels, but legal brothels, but we didn't oversample or try to get at uh, consumers of street markets and, and other non-online markets. So it, it really just captures folks that are savvy with the internet. Um, but what's also important to say here is that uh, the the, we conducted the survey before FOSTA-SESTA took uh, hold. And, and as you know, FOSTA-SESTA was a bill that was passed in the US to criminalize, uh, to attempt to criminalize online uh, advertising of sex work. Um, so the survey and our understanding of clients couldn't have happened uh, after that was passed. But thank goodness we were able to gather that data before then. And Chris? Yeah, um, I mean those those are the lovely big broad strokes. Um, in in terms of other ways in which our sample uh, might be differentiated um, compared to other research on clients, um, absolutely our data leans wider. And when we when we discuss um, when we discuss the topic of the sample, um, we should recognize that when we look at representative samples, neither of which of these are representative samples, in part because you can't possibly create a, um, a representative sample of this object, of this topic, really. Um, but we are samples because they are gathered from uh, specific communities. We did our recruitment, both the UK and the US uh, survey. The recruitment methods generally involved promoting it, promoting these surveys on spaces uh, where clients tend to gather. So in the UK, that included, um, that included uh, client review sites. Um, in the US, that actually primarily worked through places like Twitter, um, which is where uh, many clients were connecting with sex workers in their area. Um, not just the brothels, we uh, ended up expanding that effort. And so we the results ended up with um, a group that's not only whiter, but is also uh, a fair bit older. You would expect that with an online survey uh, that that might skew younger in our data, but actually it's quite the opposite, it skews older. Uh, and part of the reason why that is, is because both of these surveys are not just surveys of, um, of just anyone who buys sex work, um, at least in part, they are surveys of uh, consistent or veteran buyers. Uh, because of the way we recruited that sample, which makes this data perhaps even a little bit more unique um, because these are folks that are harder to get in touch with. Um, these are not the folks who are necessarily being picked up by the police uh, here in the United States. Um, typically those are first time buyers that are younger, less experienced, don't really know uh, how to buy sex safely. Um, and so our sample, when we talk about who it represents, it's really important to acknowledge um, who, who we captured in those methods. Um, we also managed to catch, um, at least in the US, in the US sample, we managed to catch a surprising number of women. Um, 
it's not just men in our sample. Both samples have at least some women. Uh, the UK sample, I think, has a total of 13 women in it, which is not very much given that sample size. Um, but in the US, I think we had 41, um, which is actually a surprising number. Um, and so we're able to at least look at some basics uh, with those, even if we can't do anything complicated um, with it. And so besides white and besides men, which is the sort of standard skew that you would expect, um, we also know that our sample uh, earned more money on average, both in the US and the UK, it's more extreme in the US. Um, and we also know that they are a fair bit older. I think, uh, I think in the UK, the average age was 48 and in the US it's 50. Um, and so as you can imagine, that's going to shift the range of, of several things. Um, but that is a lot more characteristic of the folks who buy consistently as opposed to, um, I suppose otherwise. We, we oftentimes assume uh, that the folks who are buying sex are not going to be the wealthiest or most educated. We assume that they're not going to be, um, we're, they're not going to be sort of the more successful people in society. But actually, when we look at veteran buyers, they tend to be wealthier. They tend to be more educated. They tend to be um, more capable of supporting what turns out to be sometimes a, a fairly expensive activity to do on the regular. Yeah, that's quite interesting. So in your survey, were people buying sex in a variety of different ways? Like, I, I haunt adult work. I'm constantly trawling through adult work. And what I've noticed when I when you when you press on people's feedback, yeah, so you press on those sort of, uh, the sex workers' feedback, you can see all the people that have left feedback for them. Okay, so you can see the the buyers' feedback. When you click on their feedback, you can see that they're actually purchasing sex in lots of different ways. So you'll have people that will, for example, will use uh, webcoming and phone chat and a variety of different different ways of buying sex online is that is that what you found in your survey as well that people were, uh, you know using the internet to purchase different types of sexual experience um i want to say real quickly but yes absolutely uh, as i said we were we were surprised to find that people at the legal brothels were also purchasing uh in a variety of other markets and so one of the unique things that our survey was able to do is to see uh, the variety of places and the frequency uh, measured in kind of different ways of how often people go to different uh, markets. But what was really unique about the UK survey is that they also took care to look at consumers of, of webcamming um, and those, all sorts of online venues. Ours tended to focus on just full service, usually face-to-face -face, uh, sexual services. And so Tila can talk about that a little bit. So in, in Beyond the Gaze, we asked in um, about non-touch sexual consumption. Um, and so we had a whole section on people who were could, could answer as a webcam um, user. And we really explored here and had some open-ended questions too, to think about the remote purchasing um, process and obviously this was pre-COVID situations where it probably was less, possibly less um, uh, prevalent as it is now at two years on, three years on. So the remote purchasing um, and we really were able to explore in that qualitative data as well um, the whole issues around intimacy online or and all that contested notions around intimacy and digital technologies which in the sociology literature has been quite stark 
for several years, but we really wanted to use that space to explore both the continuity around um, intimacy, but also new understandings of intimacy through the webcam and what that digital terminal does in the, the provider, um, uh, seller, uh, consumption relationship there and what are those patterns of sexual consumption so we were able to find out a lot more and interestingly it does mirror some regular patterns around um, purchases of webcamming going to the same models um, uh, camera on camera off these kind of um, anomalies but we really have been able to explore in the book a little bit more theoretically using that empirical data the reshaping of intimacy in that non-contact digitally facilitated environment, um, which I think, you know, there's, there's not that much been done. Hopefully it'll be a lot more um, as, as people studying webcamming um, continues to thrive in the, in the sociologies. So we have been able to look a little bit more at non-touch, which has been quite, quite interesting and quite exciting. Yeah. Hey, I, I, have a, I have a question that I wanted to ask the two of you, because I can't remember now, but it seems to me that the crossover between folks that uh, were customers of webcamming and customers of full service sex was was not as big as we would have thought. Do you all, can you all talk about that? Can I, yes. can I, say, can I say something about that? Because when I interviewed um, 35 webcam performers for my research, what I found is that there was a really massive crossover. Like, Five of the women that I interviewed, and bearing in mind, people that uh, respond to interviews generally respond because they're kind of, they're in, you know, they're, they're particularly interested. But five of the women that I spoke to had started relationships with, like, you know, full on relationships with people that they'd met online. And a lot of them had seen their customers online as well. They're using it almost as like a street corner. You know, so that was that was quite interesting. But I think what was really interesting in also I interviewed um, I, I interviewed the CEO of Streammate and I also interviewed um, an affiliate owner and they both mentioned that they felt like they were kind of um, commodifying loneliness. They, they mentioned the times of day that people were logging on as being, you know, those times generally that you that you would reach out for a partner so I, I i in my experience i'd found that there was quite a quite a big crossover that that women themselves were using different formats but also th you know the they you know they were definitely using the webcam to connect with their customers chris um i wondered you know if you if you could respond to that question as well uh so when it comes to webcam i'm like flipping through part of the book because i i don't fully remember this part myself um, but my my impression, my memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tila, um, is that for for us, let's see, it's about a, a third of the UK sample um, had engaged in um, had watched live webcams, um, and I I don't recall whether or not we specifically tested how many of them engaged in webcams and nothing else. Um, and so maybe Tila has the answer to that question off the top of her head. Um, but yes. Yes, yeah, so there's about um, a third, a third of the, the uh, respondents said that they had um, only watched webcam in. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. But what was interesting, can I just carry on? So what was interesting, 
when we ask them what's hype, and I guess this is the evolution of that type of market, which has clearly moved on since 2016. But we ask them about, you know, is it just the free public shows? Um, do they tip? Do they not tip? Do they ask for private shows? Um, private shows two ways. So really getting into the, the mechanics, really, of how that market works online. And, you know, clearly now that there's, there's a lot more uh, creativity around that webcoming experience now as things have moved on online. Um, and there's been a lot more uh, creative types of, of platforms available to um, for, for people to, to, to engage with. But we really tried to get to some of the nitty gritty of what are those relationships? Are they passive? Are they active? Is there longer term relationships with people? who only meet each other online um, and what is the nature of that? What is the social or the sexual uh, and or the sexual? Um, but as you can imagine, masturbation was a key part of that interaction, even if there was um, preferences for some more social interactions as well. And Chris? Yeah. Um, to, to add on to that, I, I, think, I think maybe the, perhaps the most important part of the book um, for this was some of our uh, exploration of qualitative data actually, because um, we had respondents who were um, talking about what it meant or what they valued most about the webcam experience. Uh, and some of those features um, mirrored in some really important ways, some experiences uh, that we identified in qualitative comments for uh, direct contact sex work. Um, and a lot of that had to do uh, with building emotional connection with the web camera, uh, building relationship with the web camera. Um, we oftentimes have this stereotypical uh, vision of sex work being a situation in which a guy doesn't, you know, doesn't care about the woman. He's just there for the pleasure. He comes in, he pays for the sex. Um, you know, he gets his hour, he has his fun, he walks away, uh, and there's no real social interaction, there's no, uh, there's no connection building. And a lot of what we found, um, especially in the qualitative comments uh, on our survey of which I, I believe both of our surveys had, uh, had plenty of qualitative comments to offer in, um, had a lot to do with uh, how, do I, how do I get access to something that really uh, builds a degree of emotional connection. I wanna feel like I know a person I don't, uh, I'm not just looking to get off. I want to feel like I'm engaging. I want to feel like I'm interacting. I want to feel like uh, I'm supporting. And sometimes that evolves in little ways. Um, for example, one client just emphasizes the importance of eye contact. Uh, this one little thing uh, that takes an experience away from, you know, watching a pornographic film um, and into the realm of human interaction. For others, they really wanted to know about uh, their camera's life. Um, and the same is true for a lot of those in-person contacts. Um, many of the clients that uh, wrote in on those qualitative comments really uh, wanted to not just have the girlfriend experience the GFE or, um, or you know, just have a good time, but they actually wanted to have a longer term uh, relationship of sorts. And to be clear, um, before I, I just drop that statement and walk away from it. Um, nobody is confused in these surveys about um, what that relationship is. They understand that it's a commercial relationship. Uh, the vast majority of these folks are not, um, are not 
selling themselves a bill of goods, thinking that their sex worker is in love with that. You know, that's that's not the sense that we get from these qualitative comments. Though some people, uh, some people in these debates tend to think of it that way. Um, they know what it is, but they are still looking for an emotional connection as part of that consumption relationship. And that is a, a really dominant, consistent thing that we keep finding, uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Yeah, I suppose. Just, can I just read out a quote from one of those? Just to, so a quote in the survey was, uh, we talk, we laugh, we joke, and even cry about the ups and downs of our private and public lives, talk about our experiences from the past, where we are now and what we are intending for the future is very common to share similar life values for instance a popular theme for both parties is quote we're unlikely to find our ideal partner on a drunken nightclub dance floor at 3 a.m also if i haven't seen them in many months they still remember our last conversation and what we are getting up to in our lives at that time and that's from somebody who uses webcam yeah i in my my, my experience with like talking to webcam performers as well was that you know, they, they would develop a relationship over a long period of time and that relationship would morph, you know, like whatever particular sort of demand the customer was making tended to morph over time. So they would evolve, you know, and that's what it got. Um, can you talk us through the way the book uh, frames demand? Because you spend quite a lot of time talking about demand and the, we, we get that debate around demand, around the, the kind of radical anti-sex working uh, sort of debate. So, how does your how does the book discuss demand? Um, actually, that that was a really important point that we we wanted to make in the book. Um, I think our our main thing we're trying to get across is that demand is not just oh all you got to do is stop a consumer and uh, and then they'll stop and then you eliminate demand and then you eliminate the industry. Demand is, is complex and it involves a lot of different layers. And that's part of what our main point, it's, it's situational factors matter. Things like um, where in one's uh, life course one is, uh, uh, how much money you have available, how easily or difficult you it would be to contact a sex worker with, who provides the services that you want not just writ large how hard is it but how able are you to um to, to find as a consumer what you want i mean i think in, in a lot of ways demand is is so is as complex as demand for any kind of consumer service in our culture today uh and uh, we are increasingly living in a culture in which uh, we all, there is a market for connection uh, and uh, adventure and excitement and all the level of things that you can uh, have provided for you through the kind of sexual services that are offered. Um, so it's not just things like live course. I mean, it, it, does somebody want to access uh, services when they're on vacation traveling away or do they want someone close by? Um, and uh, all, all of these things matter. It's just a really, a really complex kind of a, of a thing. Yeah, I think also we wanted to, to kind of frame or reframe the ideas of demand um, and, and to kind of speak 
against the notions that eradication would be a way or a solution for safety or improving violence against women and girls or reducing trafficking or modern slavery and to actually think about customers as part of the solution some of these atrocities that happen in, in society against sex workers so um, we spend a good chunk of the book talking about how clients can help reduce harm and reduce exploitation and explore this controversial idea of responsible consumption. Um, now, this is clearly not a new concept and it's applied to all elements, particularly in relation to environmental consumption. But if we're thinking about responsible consumption um, and how clients can be using the cases against violence and against coercion, then it's flipping the traditional harmful discourses around customers often on its head to think a little bit more about ethical consumption, what that is, um, is it possible, how can it be achieved, um, and to have those more forward-thinking, pragmatic uh, discussions and debates, then you have to engage in, you know, what is the customer, what are they there for, um, you know, is the, it, you know, how can we facilitate safer sexual services between consenting adults? Um, so we really do go into into that a little bit more in the book. Chris? Yeah, and to build right off of what Tila was saying there, um, in order to do that, we have to have a, a pretty solid understanding of uh, those different market experiences. When we talk about um, sex work consumption, we oftentimes tell ourselves a very simplistic story about how that's done. Uh, we tell a story of, you know, driving up and, and picking, uh, picking a person up off the street, or we tell a story about, uh, perhaps if we're a little bit more informed these days, we might tell a story, uh, a, more, a more modern story about uh, finding an advertisement online. Um, but the reality is, is that, as we said, clients are engaged in multiple markets. And so in this book, we take great pains to try and figure out how can we better organize a conversation around market preferences? How can we better organize a conversation around the choices that folks are making? And this is key because uh, sex, uh, the conditions of the sexual economy are, um, are various now. People have choices. Uh, it's it's different from the 1940s and 50s where um, you don't have networked access to a variety of options. Um, you, you have a choice if you're going to go shopping uh, for sex. Would you like to use online methods? Would you like to look at folks' websites? Would you like to, um, would you like to access a client review site and, and see what other people are saying? Uh, would you rather uh, explore some of your local environments um, and see maybe there's a maybe there's a massage parlor in your area? Perhaps you'd prefer something um, something more like that that doesn't involve uh, connecting through your digital identities. Uh, maybe you'd prefer to consume in a more public place, such as a bar, um, which is sort of a common, more old school way of making those connections. Um, and each one of those comes with a different, a very different experience of sex work. Um, and so when we, when we have historically told the story of these consumption practices, we assume that there's really not a whole lot of options. You do it the way, um, you do it the way that is legal or safe or uh, consistently available to you. But adding in, um, as Barb was saying, the ability to travel, 
um, adds a whole nother element to this. And we saw in both of these surveys uh, a tremendous amount of variation. And so um, in order to better make sense of that, because this group is so diverse, because these market preferences are so diverse, um, we decided to, excuse me, we decided to organize um, some of these groups into um, sort of subtypes. And these subtypes are not perfect, but they are a helpful way to progress our thinking in terms of those market preferences. Um, and if you wanted to create policy around, um, you know, ethical consumption, that policy has, actually has to fit uh, the sorts of market preferences that people are engaging in. If we're going to do uh, that ethical consumption with uh, folks on review sites, well, we have some mechanisms um, that we talk about in the book for that. We can uh, we can talk about how uh, clients themselves enforce rules and promote values in those spaces for um, for ethical management. We can also talk about outreach that we could be doing in those spaces to ensure that um, you know if if somebody observes something that looks uh, looks like forced prostitution, uh, that they have access to a safe mechanism to uh, communicate their concerns. I, you know, I encountered uh, this woman. I think that she's being coerced into this work. Um, here's a here's a reporting mechanism that I know won't get me in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, there's some elements of that I think happening in the UK. Uh, that's really not available in the US. Um, it's, it's it's very dangerous for a client to uh, try and report that. Um, and then when you look at other venues, you would take other policy approaches. You have to, uh, you have to build with your space in mind. And that's a big part about, uh, a big thing that we're trying to do in this book is we're really trying to uh, make sense of those different venues and really think of them as consumer choices. Um, and when you shift that thinking towards consumer choices, uh, we have a lot more options and we have a lot more, um, we come up with different policy prescriptions for trying to improve those situations. Yeah, that was I was I was really struck by this um, this uh, section because I, I think what happens with these right really binary debates is that we forget that actually the the worker herself creates demand. Yeah, it's not always just a demand for a service; it's often a demand for a particular person. You know, and, you know, when I've spoken to people that are working, say, for example, online, a, a customer who's particularly taken will we'll buy all of her products across a, a range of different uh, sort of uh, formats. So he'll webcam with her, buy uh, like uh, video clips, he'll get, uh, buy pictures, you know, those sorts of things that go across, you know, quite often the demand is created within within the interaction. The interaction itself is dynamic. You know, it's not it's not one pussy fits all. It's like, you know, it's like they create that demand. Um, also as well, it's really interesting with what you were saying about um, ethical sort of like customer use, because I've, I've done a lot of research uh, interviewing street women and I, I, um, I, I interviewed a woman who had actually been trafficked, you know, and she, she, she'd, you know, been freed from this flat that she was working in because the customer, our customer had gone to the police. A customer had reported her, her, um, her, you know, her situation, and I think that these types of discussion help us to rehumanize everyone in the equation. It rehumanizes the, the the sex worker as being dynamic and able to create demand for for who she is, but also as well, it it makes the the customer more dynamic. I think it's just a really important discussion to have around demand. 
Um, if I could add one other thing too, is is the ability to look broadly like this uh, at you know statistics and, and big surveys and big picture is you you begin to see sort of the ways in which things fluctuate and the patterns in which they fluctuate across many different settings. And I think that uh, an additional problem then with the ways in which we have conceptualized demand uh, and assuming that the there are no multiple factors affecting demand. You're just, demand is uniform, which is what our book is showing is completely not true. Is it, if you don't pay attention to that, there are unintended consequences of, of what your policy can do. In the US, uh, we wanna get rid of demand by criminalizing clients. Well, one of the things I, you notice in, in the differences between the US and the UK survey is that uh, our clients tend to be wealthier. So when you criminalize it, you make it so that those with the, the most resources can access the services the way they want to and do so safely and out, you know, outside the law with money. Uh, but then the ones that are, and, and you eliminate this sort of middle range of folks who are, um, who wanna just, who wanna do this the right way. And then at the, at the other end then are those who uh, are, wanna break the, may wanna break the law and don't pay attention to the client, the, the sex workers. And um, so it's, it's like you either, uh, you squeeze out the middle in a sense when you criminalize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that just all adds to the discourse of disposability, this idea that only the elites can access sex work in the in the an illegal context. So it does set up sex workers to be targeted, to not be paid, to have the negotiation um, disrupted, um, and you know just increases that homophobic discourse, um, which ultimately puts people at harm. So it does have really um, unintended, dangerous consequences. Or arguably, it just pushes everyone behind the paywall because. It seems to me that Foster and Sisters is entirely blind when it comes to web cabin, you know. I mean, I can see I can see us getting to a stage where, you know, any sexual engagement happens behind a paywall and that goes through the banking system. You know, it's a kind of herding. Can I just make one comment um, around our older clients? Because I find this is important part of what we found out in terms of new sociological knowledge, um, you know, flagging up that uh, the surveys do really demonstrate um, sexual services being purchased by older cohorts. Now, this obviously feeds into broader knowledge around changes in sexual behaviours and sexual attitudes in the fourth life or fourth stage of life. But, um, you know, a quarter of the UK sample was 61 years old plus. And the interesting thing there was, um, you know, when we talk about consuming sexual services, on average, most people only bought sex three times a year apart from the older age groups. So the older age groups were the ones that were much more regular in purchasing sexual services once or twice a month. Um, and this is quite interesting in terms of dynamics and thinking about consumption um, across the life course. And with that older age stage being a trigger for engaging in sexual consumption. Um, so obviously from a public health point of view, um, thinking about, you know, it's the older cohorts who have the the largest um, increases in STIs at the moment. 
Um, so just thinking about that older cohort and what it means um, in relation to, to buying sexual services and often starting it when conventional relationships change in that later life and purchasing sexual services either start or are restarted or increase. So for me, it's that older cohort is really quite interesting epidemiologically. Um, and we should be thinking about that um, in an interdisciplinary way to think about the older, older, older groups of people. What I really want to do then is think about how does this influence um, supply? How, who are supplying sexual services to this group of older men? Um, I don't imagine it's all 18-year-olds. I can't imagine um, that, it, that it is just that. And does that mean that there's more people, more older people, older women staying in sexual services providing to this older group, older group of men? So that dynamic is it is there a, is there a in, interaction there between who is is entering the sex industry, who is staying on longer to provide sexual services or sexualized services, so to speak. So I think that's a really fascinating part um, and, and finding from, from the data and hopefully something we can go on to explore further. Yeah, I would, I would imagine sort of, uh, you know, from what you're saying, that you have to take into account as well, what really speaks to me about the demographic of this research is also the, the people, it's time consuming to fill out research. Yeah, to fill out a research so you've got to be one motivated and two have the time to do it so actually what you're maybe what you're finding as well is that that the people who've got time to respond to the survey are the older people yeah and it's a kind of it's almost a reflection in the the UK context of how you know how much uh, more sort of financially comfortable the older generation is than the younger generation but also I suppose you've got that thing as well and I can't remember what her name is and she talks about how we how we um, net, network everyone nowadays. Like, you know, so you, you're used to networking people. So, you know, younger people may not be responding because they're more used to accessing people in a networked way and not necessarily sort of like uh, responding to it. Because my thought is this, is you have to be really motivated by your sexual experience, either good or bad, to respond to a survey that you're not being paid to respond to. You know, so you're talking really about customers who who have had a significant experience, aren't you? All have got the time to talk about it, you know. So yeah, that was that's what struck me. Well, I think it's not it's it. I mean, you're probably right that we probably uh, if we had magically been able to have a representative sample, we may have had a younger population as well. Uh, but it it's really important. I think that older the older you are, the more income generally you have in order to purchase these things. Yeah. Uh, our sample had uh, disproportionately unmarried people, and I think most surveys of clients have found that uh, compared to the population as a whole, clients are less likely to be married, uh, and uh, so you've got folks that are at a stage of life where they may not have a partner or as some of the, the qualitative data from our survey found, uh, they, their spouses may be sick or may be unable to have sex and many have given permission. Uh, many are in open relationships. Um, so it, I think it's important as Tila was saying, not just to, to think that those are the folks that answer our survey, but to try to understand uh, that uh, older men are a an important client population here, and 
in need of, as Chris talked about earlier, intimacy and emotional connection and that sort of thing. Have you got anything to add, Chris? Barb and Tila uh, really nailed this one on the head. Um, but I will say there's um, there's a couple additional things that I think are very interesting about this older client population. Um, first and foremost, um, there's the relationship portion um, that is quite valuable. Uh, relatedly, there's also um, the topic of disability, which uh, is more likely to be experienced by our older clients. Um, and disability is one of those two areas. We, did, we don't actually have, unfortunately, too much data when it comes to disability, but disability oftentimes came up in our qualitative comments. Um, and we had uh, folks who are, you know, uh, older men, some of them are uh, war veterans um, with visible physical injuries. Um, others are just uh, physically unfit or requiring wheelchairs, things like that. And these are things uh, that, it, that uh, many seem to be identifying as um, reasons why they simply can't access sex in a, in, in a regular consistent fashion or even struggle to have sex with an established partner with. Um, and so these older populations are also going to be disproportionately uh, dealing with uh, a loss of ability to participate. And one of the things uh, that they seem to identify about sex workers is that many of them, or at least perhaps some specialized sex workers, we're not really sure um, how specialized or not uh, this activity is, but um, there seems to be at least some sex workers out there that are very good at handling folks who have physical limitations when it comes to having sex. Uh, one gentleman in the US survey explained uh, that he was in a wheelchair and he was, um, he was very heavy set. And there were a couple women in particular that he stuck with. And the reason why he stuck with them is because they were, as he put it, very good at this. And when I say very good at this, I don't mean very good in bed. They're very good at seeing past my wheelchair. Uh, there was another gentleman in the US survey who was a military war veteran. Um, and I, I don't remember this quote exactly off the top of my head, but he had uh, very visi visible uh, battle points. Uh, that he that was very sensitive, as you can imagine. Um, you know, you lose an arm or something in battle, and that's um, that's very difficult. And to imagine trying to date when you have um, something like that that's holding you back um, from being considered conventionally uh, attractive. Um, and in these cases, uh, these men are finding both emotional uh, and physical solace with um, sex workers who really understand what it is um, to, feel, to feel as though uh, your body is a detriment to you. Um, and we don't necessarily think of that as an experience for uh, sex work and sex workers and sex work clients, but um, it seems to be making a significant difference in some of these older populations. Um, disability itself um, becomes a really important topic. As well. Yeah, it fits really nicely into my, my next question as well, actually. Um, you write at considerable length about masculinities in the context of purchasing of sex. Can you tell us how the book explores this? Um, yeah, what, what's interesting that 
about the contemporary research on masculinities is the findings about, and this I'm talking generally and not just sex work related, but, but uh, masculinities are changing. Um, and increasingly uh, men are, are, are the notion of, of hegemonic masculinity, which, is, which still exists, there is still a dominant form of masculinity, but increasingly it's really formed in as much in relationship to other men as it is in relation to women. Uh, I say that because the concern about sex work from many quarters is that uh, men build their sense of masculinity based on dominating other women. Uh, they are not women, therefore they uh, must control other women. And this is sort of the main critique of the sex industry is that it's a, a manifestation of this kind of, of masculinity. Well, what research is increasingly finding is that men build masculinities in relationship to other men, other marginalized uh, groups of men, uh, as well as uh, against each other. And when we look at, for example, the attitudes towards women among the clients in our survey, we find that they're actually much more egalitarian in their attitudes were with women. Chris uh, and uh, a number of folks and I have a, another article that we published recently just looking at attitudes towards uh, women and, ge and gender equality. And you find that they're actually more egalitarian in their attitudes as measured in this survey than are the, is the population as a whole. And what that is, is when you're, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a tendency is when you when you need when you're getting something that you need from women you respect service providers and that is evident in a lot of the qualitative uh, responses that we see uh, and a lot of the other research that um, there is an appreciation for uh, other other women uh, that is fostered um, when you depend on a service that you pay for from mm -hmm. them. It's just not. It's just not the case that you automatically tend to objectify, um, and th this reflects changes in the way men are are acting generally. Yeah, and I think we we need to really reopen that conversation about objectification, considering we now live in this networked society where we objectify each other all the time in every single sort of context you know and i think it's nasban that talks about objectification can actually be quite nice you know it's like i don't mind being objectified in the right circumstances as long as it doesn't straight out of that circumstance this is really quite you know everyone likes likes you know everyone likes likes um yeah so uh I, you know, you, the book it, uh, talks about the uh, the impact that digital technology has impacted on the sex industry. Can you talk us through this a little bit, Chris? Sure. Um, so the digital world has uh, made tons of changes to how folks consume sex historically. Um, as I had mentioned earlier on, um, our, our original version of 
sex work in our heads uh, comes kind of like from this uh, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Um, at least in the U.S. anyway, I can't speak for, you, for the U.K., but in the U.S., uh, our perception is, you know, slow trawling uh, in your car in the dead of night um, down some back alley street, uh, inviting someone in uh, to your car and then driving over to a motel, something like that. Um, but for most of our participants, this is the least likely uh, scenario for how they're going to consume sex uh, these days. And part of that may have to do with, uh, with sampling. Obviously, we targeted folks who are already active on the digital sphere. Uh, however, we did find a, a significant number of persons who have used uh, street contact as, their, as a method, but even, even when they did, it was often infrequent. Um, there's probably uh, a variety of reasons for that, at least in the U.S. Uh, most notably, it's probably the easiest way to get caught. Um, and so if you had your first experience there, you're less likely to want to uh, do the most risky thing first. Uh, and choose that as your primary method. Uh, today in the digital sphere, um, most of the folks both in the UK and the US uh, speak very strongly uh, in support of using online methods as a safe alternative to uh, connecting with sex workers. Um, and it offers some particular benefits that, um, that really make it for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these clients. Um, First of all, it offers an ability to sort of not preview what you're getting, but it, um, you can engage with what other people have said about um, this, this sex worker. I mean, think about whenever you want to buy something yourself. One of the first things you probably do these days, um, if you're going to go to Amazon or whatever, is you scroll to the bottom, you look at the rating, you look at the stars, you look at the the comments and say, oh, what was good about this product? What was bad about that product? In some ways, um, that is now available for sex work in a way uh, that folks were unable to do before. Yeah. Um, and in so doing, I mean, there's, and there's newfound complexities to that, right? For both the sex worker and the client. Clients can um, post reviews that are not very flattering. Um, with ulterior motives besides uh, just trying to honestly inform other clients. But meanwhile, other clients uh, can uh, push and enforce uh, a, a more positive set of values in that space. There's, there's pros and cons on both sides and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, there's also uh, more security and privacy available in these spaces. Um, because you can email a client, um, you can negotiate things before you ever get there, right? Um, you can set forth expectations right from the get-go. Uh, everyone knows what the score is very easily. That being said, technology also brings new risks. Uh, we had um, the UK sample in particular uh, ask questions about scams um, and other sort of bait and switch experiences. Um, many of our Many of the clients who responded in the UK sample identified uh, situations where they had a picture of one person, they arrived, there's another person, or they arrive and there's someone else there. Um, some folks, I some folks uh, pointed to what are what's sort of like a newer version of an old school scam, which is um, that uh, you arrange a time in a meeting in a place and someone comes in. 
um, and it's either not the correct person, but they still try and get the money. And then after they get the money, they say, oh, there's somewhere I have to be. I have to go somewhere or there's someone there to collect the money and it scares the person off. Um, these scams uh, are difficult to detect at first. Client review sites sometimes are helpful for um, dissuading these, but not completely. It seems like uh, many of our clients run into these, these sorts of uh, threats and risks. Um, and there's never really a clear answer what to do for clients in these situations. Um, uh, many folks, the first sign of trouble, they just uh, skip off. Um, and this is also a, a situation where, again, we can, uh, we can talk about uh, moments of exploitation. Um, while uh, I think all three of us think it's a mistake to overemphasize the role that exploitation plays in this industry. Uh, none of us would deny that it exists. Uh, and certainly our clients ran into that as well. Um, client reviews are, are, are sometimes helpful for that as well because uh, clients will uh, acknowledge, they'll also learn from their fellow clients how to identify uh, what, what might potentially be uh, exploitation. So some of our clients acknowledged, you know, oh, I came to this situation, I saw this red flag, I saw that red flag, uh, even if it's something they never tried to go through, um, go through with in the past, they can sort of recognize it immediately because they have that knowledge that they gained uh, partially online. So there's a, there's a tremendous number of changes um, that are happening on the digital, uh, on the digital front. Um, talk about their engagement with the actual platforms that they're using um because my my experience with like talking to webcam performers is that a lot of the really exploitative practices that they come into contact do not come from the customers they come from this totally kind of uh, uh sort of like no workers rights environment that this sort of criminalization creates so you know in the context of like webcam performing sites if if you contravene the webcam hosting site, the, you know, the, the performer contravenes the webcam hosting site in any, any way, her, her account can be just suspended right there and there. And any money that she's got in that account, most people take their money out once a week, once a fortnight, money, the money's gone. And I wondered if like the, the customers had ever, ever talked about any unfairness that they'd like perceived on the actual platforms where they engage with the, the sex workers. These are all good points, Rachel, but we didn't ask, um uh as in depth around the their engagement with the the web platforms no. um obviously this is 2016 the beyond the gaze one was and lots have changed in five years now online so it'll be very interesting to see but my take is from speaking with customers is that they have less engagement it's much more complicated for the provider than it is yeah. for the seller and they may have had reviews taken down or they may have even been had their accounts closed, um, but uh, there is less interaction with with that interface than there is for the providers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just it, it just occurred to me that, that maybe they'd they'd experienced it. So um, yeah, so, so we've covered a lot of the questions that I wanted to ask. You kind of flew, you sort of floated into them quite naturally, which was nice. And um, so, who is the book written for? Who who's your audience? Who are you aiming for? Um, well. Academics, other researchers, because we, in, in a lot of ways, we see this book as a broad sweep, a big overview. Um, 
and something that we hope will spur other scholars to asking more deep and detailed questions about. Um, so at, at one level, it was, it was to other, other folks who research the sex industry. It's also to uh, maybe other folks generally who are interested in sex work and interested in the field, and probably most importantly to policymakers or to those who try to influence policymakers. Because, you know, the, the evidence-based research is so important to the policymaking process. And we have very little published research on science. It's starting to grow, but not enough. So our hope is that folks, policymakers and folks who are trying to educate policymakers uh, can find this book useful. Yeah, I thought it was really brave, like pioneer book. I really did get a lot from it. it was, you know, it started to, it definitely prompted questions for me. You know, it did definitely prompt questions for me. I sort of like, I found a lot of things that really echoed with my research, but also there was other stuff that, that came through that I really wanted to explore more. Like I remember speaking to the CEO of like Streamit, who's totally scratching his head because he cannot understand why Streamit can't make any headways in India. He's like, everything's there. You know, you've got this up and coming middle class. You've got this, you know, you've got internet connection. You know, it's like, can't work it out. And I'm like, well, people aren't living on their own. You know, it's the same way with like, you know, the studios in places like Romania and Colombia. I went to Romania randomly and people are working in studios because people are living together. So you have to go out to work. You can't work from home. Like, you know, say webcam is doing this. In, in the Northwest context. So it's a really, I think it's a really important sort of, um, sort of book to explore outside the Northwest, uh, the global Northwest as well. You know, I thought it was, you know, it prompted as many questions for me as it answered. So what, you know, this is the final question. What are you currently working on? What are you, what are you all sort of brewing up? Because I know that you are just, you, you you are just on fire, like constantly, like sort of, you know, sort of creating new sort of like stuff in the, the industry. I'm going to start with Chris. Chris, what are you doing? Um, gosh, I wish I was on as on fire as as Barb and T. Lumer. Um, <laughs> so uh, I I came onto this project, and and clients of sex work was not uh, not my original plan for doing work, and so my work deviates a little bit from Barb and Tila's. Um, so I'm currently uh, collecting data for my dissertation uh, in sociology, um, and that dissertation is on how individuals who are on uh, public sex offender registries adapt to um, adapt to regimes of surveillance and social control. Uh, and so I'm looking at the ways in which uh, they actively change or pursue different options, given the fact that they are oftentimes shut out of major social institutions on a daily basis. Um, as, and so you can you can imagine that there are there are some hints of relationships. Some clients might uh, might experience uh, being on the registry later on if they are caught, um, depending on uh, state and local regulations here in the United States. Um, but it's, it's a fair bit broader than that. Um, I consider this work to be part of a part of a broader oeuvre. Um, I, I sort of connect um, connect issues of sex work uh, with a larger uh, discussion of what David Halperin and Trevor Hoppe have called uh, the contemporary war on sex. Um, they argue in their text that this work. Um, 
that there is still very much a war on sex, that the liberalization um, of sex and sexuality in Western society uh, did not erase any sort of war on sex. In fact, it's just that um, the targets are different. Um, the characters and the cast members uh, have changed somewhat in recent years. Uh, and so I consider both this work and uh, that work to be a part of a broader mission of recasting and understanding uh, contemporary social control mechanisms uh, for sexual behavior um, long-term uh, across one's life. And so that's, that's my primary focus. I am probably still gonna be working on some publications from this data as well. So I'm not done with this. Uh, despite the fact uh, that the book has been out for a while, uh, I just I have to get my own data collection going before I can get come back to it. Uh, so that's that's essentially what I'm working on. I'm also, uh, as of only a couple of days ago, I've started to partner with the Williams Institute, which is a which is a group outside of University of California, Los Angeles, that studies uh, LGBT issues from an empirical quantitative uh, framework. And so they're doing work on sex offenders, which is sort of how I connected with them. But I, I, I hope that um, I hope my collaborations with them will continue uh, beyond their their current work into sex offender issues. So would this just be for most of the sex offenders? Sex workers who've been, you know, sort of prosecuted, how that impacts their life, their life course. So this so this work is a is a. I mean, I will, I will likely deal with uh, clients of sex workers in the project, but I'm dealing with the whole, uh, the whole kit and caboodle when it comes to um, folks on the registry. So everyone from uh, people who have committed crimes that that most of us would consider to be heinous, uh, all the way to um, unjust and falsely committed or um, convicted. Sorry. Um, so it's, it, I'm really dealing with the whole range there. Um, and part of the reason why I'm not really engaging in any kind of debate about uh, whether or not um, any one person's behavior is acceptable is that it really doesn't matter for the purposes of understanding a regulatory regime, uh, whether or not we think those activities are just, we simply need to understand how those regulatory regimes are working in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, in part because they, um, the mechanisms that we're using are likely to create adaptations that we probably, um, even from sort of a, a pro-criminal justice standpoint, are probably not the ones that we want them to make. So, for example, uh, in the criminological literature, we're really interested in how do um, how do we get people to desist or avoid reoffense, right? Uh, and so we know some of the factors that do that, but the registry actually dissuades people from engaging in those factors. Uh, so the registry actually discourages people from dating, which could lead to a long-term marriage and a stable family life. It discourages them from seeking uh, long-term employment. It discourages them uh, from accessing any of the primary social institutions that might help stabilize a person long-term, uh, give them a reason uh, not to reoffend in yeah. the first place. Um, and so I... I find it very interesting that our adaptations do the opposite of the things uh, that we are hopeful um, to create in those populations. Exactly. exactly. Tila, what are you on? Um, You're muted, Tila. Um, lots of writing projects on uh, various edited collections, um, special issues on decriminalization. 
and about to announce with Angela Jones and Alina Shai that we are um, going to be caretaking a book series on sex work studies for Palgrave. Um, and it's very much about putting those at the margins at the centre. So looking forward to facilitating that for the next decade. Watch this space on that one. And then various empirical projects, one with Barb, um, which Bob can talk about, which is um, sex work and sexual violence across four countries. Um, and then doing quite a lot of policy and practice related work. So a fab little project on student sex work. Um, University of Leicester have been the first university to have an inclusion policy for student sex workers. And I now have an outreach program to universities, training staff. We've got a team of two trainers um, and we're very much uh, informed by lived experience. And since January, we've trained 300 uh, staff in universities already. Um, and we have waiting lists into June and July. So that's an 18 month project on student sex work inclusion. And then working with the police on their new refreshed guidance for 2022, uh, the National Police Chief Council's there. So um, various projects going on in relation to um, impact and policy. Excellent. And Bob, what are you doing? What are you up to? Well, first, I want to say what a uh, incredible honor and privilege it's been to work with two of the most uh, smartest, prolific, doing important research folks here, Chris and Tila. Chris is going to uh, change the world uh, uh, once Tila and I are done um, uh, or continue to. Uh, and Tila is like probably one of the most prolific and active uh, sex work scholars uh, on the planet. So I am, am just a little cog in a machine here. But I, and I, but I do want to shout out Chris's, the importance of Chris's work because as he said, this war on sex, uh, we, I mean, just, I, I don't know when this is airing, but just yesterday, there was a little bit of justice in the United States with the George Floyd case where, where police murdered a, a African-American man, a, a problem that is uh, just highlighted the inequalities of our criminal justice system and the ways in which so many of our laws simply target with, with all sorts of paint on them, uh, poor and marginalized folks. And the, uh, and as we're starting to pay attention to some aspects in criminal justice reform, thank goodness, I think we're squeezing our ire and the target of laws to sex offenders, to clients of sex workers. I mean, just this legislative session in Nevada, we were fighting back, including Chris was doing this as well, fighting back a number of policies that, that sought to increase penalties. Uh, against anybody in and around the sex industry in a, uh, a veiled attempt to try and save and help sex workers. But we couldn't even get a bill passed in, in our legislature to decriminalize victims of trafficking uh, because of this notion that you've got to arrest people in order to save them. And so it was it was ridiculous. So this war on sex is is very real. And as we're thinking about criminal justice reform, it's really important to see the intersections with all sorts of 
of, of populations. And so Chris's work is really important. Um, and Tila, you know, is a, a role model in many ways. And, and my hope is to take some of her uh, work, especially convincing police departments to think differently around this and bring this to the United States. And so uh, one of the projects I have the privilege of working on is this grant that Tila and a number of other scholars have gotten to compare uh, sexual violence and the ways in which sex workers deal with sexual violence in the US, the UK, and New Zealand. Uh, and we're just starting this, this project and it's gonna be quite amazing uh, just to look at what the regulatory context does to people's ability to actually deal with violence. Um, so that's an exciting thing. I'm actually uh, working on a couple of edited book collections um, one of which I'm hoping to uh, get published in Tila's series. Um, I'm also working with a, a group of folks. Uh, we've got 250 scientists from around the globe to sign on to a statement that we sent to the Biden administration and to governors in various states across the country saying, hey, uh, when you're making policies, pay attention to the research. Uh, scientists for sex worker rights, as we call this campaign, and so we're hoping to follow the model uh, that Tila and a number of other great UK scholars have done in trying to get onto the get get evidence-based research onto the um, policy to get policymakers to listen in the US, which is not something typically done. Um, so that it's great that all this stuff. Yeah, and I think it's time that, you know, the governments look at the social harms that they're causing by their policies. You know, they do harm, you know, in their bid to, to, to rescue, they actually do more harm than rescue. You know, I um, after I finish this, I've got to write a real coroner's report for, for a sex worker that, that, that died because there are no provisions. Yeah, there are no provisions because exiting groups are just you know, taking up all this all this money nowadays, you know, and just using it for their own political agenda. So anyway, on that rather somber note, thank you all. It's been awesome to talk to you. Can you just tell the readers the name of the book? Who published it? I know it's available. I'll go for it. Yeah. So it's Pain for Sex in a Digital Age, um, US and UK Perspectives. And it's Routledge um, 2019 and it is available in paperback. Excellent. Go for it. Thank you all so much. My name is Rachel Stewart and I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent.